You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. Welcome to Sarah Hagen backstage. My guest today, Jimmy Chamberlain, is best known as the drummer in the Smashing Pumpkins and the Jimmy Chamberlain Complex, and he has had a pretty incredible career so far, solidifying his place as a drummer's drummer along the way. Jimmy has some really incredible projects coming up, as well as a fall tour with the Smashing Pumpkins and Jane's Addiction, which I feel like is something we all need right now. So come along with me as I catch up with Jimmy Chamberlain. Jimmy Chamberlain, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sarah. Hey, it's great to see you. Good to see you and good to be seen. Absolutely. Where are you at the moment? It looks like you're in a hotel room. <laughs> Always right. Yeah, I'm in Oklahoma City. So we've been doing, uh, we've been on tour for about 15 days now. Um, just finished a, a long run in LA. We did um, last Tuesday. It's Tuesday now. So last Tuesday we did uh, Stern in the morning, mm-hmm. which got awful. It's like you got to be there at 5.30 a.m. to do it because he, <laughs> he's in New York, right? So yes. We did Stern on Tuesday. We did uh, James Corden on Wednesday. Um, we had a, or Thursday. We did Stern on Wednesday, James Corden on Thursday. We had a show in Santa Barbara on Friday, a show in Redondo Beach on Saturday. Then we flew to Houston for another show on Sunday. And then I flew to Oklahoma City yesterday for a day off, uh, which wasn't really a day off. It was kind of like a uh, connecting flight in Dallas. And I have a show in Oklahoma City tonight about eight or nine more shows uh new orleans and then i'm home uh, for a few months but that but i'm gonna we're doing a writing session uh late june so i'm kind of off not off right right you're home but not off that that's so great though i i love it so you i saw that you've been you've had some dates and um how is how does it feel being back out there is it different are you experiencing different emotions about it I mean, you know, I always try to live in, you know, gratitude when I'm playing. So, but this is kind of another level. I mean, when it's kind of things are taken away from you, you get to see it from a little bit more of an objective vantage point um, and really, you know, get a deeper look into the value and the meaning of it. So, yeah, I think it's a little special to be out here and to see people being grateful on their own and just being, you know, thankful that you're, they're getting to experience live music again. Uh, the crowd's been great. We were in Mexico City for a week. Uh, we did four shows at the Metropolitan Theater in Mexico City, uh, and that was incredible, uh, the fans down there. It's, in fact, that's our biggest market, uh, believe it or not. So. Um, we had a great time. Uh, just, I love Mexico. I love the people. They're so cool. They're so into the music. Um, <laughs> and again, you know, the gratitude is, is infectious. So yeah, it was great. Um, and we're just, uh, we just announced a big tour later this fall with Jane's Addiction, uh, opening. So I'm looking forward to that. We, in fact, my third show ever with the Smashing Pumpkins was opening for Jane's Addiction. So I kind of wow. got the gig in October, and then Thanksgiving we opened for Jane's Addiction. So I've been friends with those guys since I think November of 1988. Oh my goodness! That's like, amazing. Like, even though I think some of the guys, like Dave, I think is a year younger than me, or 
they're like our big brothers, right? So it's so fun to be able to go out with those guys again. We did a thing where we all played uh, Jane Says together. Perry sang and Perk came in and played steel drum, um, which was great. And uh, Mm -hmm. we had a great little uh, band jam. I love that. I just interviewed Stephen Perkins and he was mentioning that there was a big tour that would be announced and that they were going out. And he said, you know, it's a band that you love and you're going to be excited, but I can't tell you about it yet. So when that was announced, I was like, yay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be drum battle every night. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It'll feel like it'll feel like old school, old times. Right. That's amazing. I just love playing with bands that really push us to kind of, you know, deliver every night. I mean, you know, obviously we, we try to do that, but when it's, you know, when it gets personal, then it's a lot more fun, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And he and he's a great guy to, to drum battle with, definitely. Yeah, Perk's great. <laughs> and so so during the pandemic, what what did you find yourself doing? Were you doing I know you were, were you released a record actually, the Jimmy Chamberlain Complex record in the middle of the pandemic, which I loved. I loved seeing the new music coming out. Um that was like kind of the savior of that whole time period was the music that was being created. Um, you know, and just art in general, it felt like a, a time for people to kind of focus on things they hadn't had time for um, or a chance to do. And so I was psyched that you came out with the album. Yeah, it was kind of an impromptu thing. I mean, I had, I was in LA uh, and I don't even know what year it was now. I think it was 20, 2017 or maybe 2018. Oh, you know what? I, it was 2018 because I was at the village uh, demoing with the pumpkins for the Rick Rubin session. So, mm-hmm. and then Holler had just moved uh, to a new house and said, "Hey, can you um, can you bring some drums over here and help me shake out the studio?" And I said, "Yeah." So I had a couple of days off, and uh, Sean happened to be in town, so we just got the trio together and just spent about four or five hours just jacking around in his studio. And we recorded everything and we just kind of wrote some stuff and just some jams and, and, you know, as we always do, we kind of leave some room for soloists uh, once we have an arrangement. And then Moeller called me uh, after the Shinies tour and he goes, Hey, this stuff we recorded is really good. We should, we should think about putting it out. And then of course, you know, by that time the pandemic had started and I said, well, you know, it's not really finished. He said, well, we can get, we can get some, some of our friends to play on it. So we called Shane Ensley um frank catalano ben wendell played on it adam benjamin so we got like you know our a-team guys to kind of play on it and then it kind of became this fully fleshed out thing and we just released it um so and it ended up it ended up doing really well uh it ended up being really well received and again it just started off like like i like to do music it just started off as like just hey let's just play whatever we feel Mm-hmm. So, it was, you know, it was an exercise in self-expression that just kind of saw the light of day, which is kind of like all my favorite records are kind of like that. Um, but yeah, so and then aside from that, during the pandemic, I think the Pumpkins recorded, I think, I think Billy and I recorded like 82 songs. <laughs> so, wow. so we recorded the Sear record, which was 20 songs. Um, and then we had the psychedelic record that we had never recorded. So we recorded drums on that. And then we recorded a Christmas album because we, we had bought this old uh, Scully tape machine four track and we had the uh, we had the um, the board 
from the Argo Marcy label downtown Chicago, we had bought the board that some of those great Buddy Rich records were recorded on. Wow. So we threw that board to the four track tape machine in mono. Uh, and we we're going to make a Christmas record out of that. And then we started working on what became the 33 song follow up to Melancholy. And then we recorded the drums on for that in March of March of last year at Blackbird. So we spent about 20 days doing that. So we ended up just working. I mean, Billy and I live pretty close to each other. We're, we're pretty much neighbors. So mm-hmm. it takes about 10 minutes to get to house, his house. So I have a studio at my house. He has a studio at his house. So it's easy for us to just kind of, Hey, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. That's great. That's so <laughs> great. I love that. Yeah. I, you know, just we oh, knock on each other's door. Hey, can you play? Right. <laughs> and I, I spent the time kind of, um, I spent the time, I had connected with uh, Steve Lyman uh, mm-hmm. via Instagram and he's a big fan and I'm a big fan of his playing. So, he came to my house and uh, we spent, we started doing drum lessons where he was bringing kind of his John Riley and Ari Honig uh, independent stuff to me. And I was kind of showing him what I was on about. Um, so it was a great collaborative uh, lesson. We've done about three or four of them now, but mostly his stuff is rooted in kind of jazz independence, uh, mm-hmm. our, you know, one finger snap Tony stuff. And then right. I was, teaching him more about kind of rock composition and and those types of things and, and narrative and those types of things. So it's been a great kind of symbiotic relationship. Uh, we've become really good friends. Uh, and it's been great for me to just work on my kind of jazz chops with uh, a master like him. Yeah, that's amazing. I love to hear that. I, I feel like, you know, this, this community of drummers is so uh, supportive of each other. And to hear about that kind of collaboration and you know, that just sharing, sharing of information in order for like the greater good. I love that. I love those stories. Yeah. Um, and I, I love like, like even the pumpkins, like we're not about like this kind of stagnation or just kind of making your second record over and over again. Mm-hmm. It was demonstrated by our output, but it's the same for me as a drummer. Like I have a quartet. I play with Frank Catalano in Chicago. It's a kind of a straight ahead quartet. And I'm just, I love that type of drumming. I just want to get better and better at it. So having access to, you know, him or, you mm-hmm. know, Ursula or any, any of these other guys, like I'm always just, you know, shamelessly tapping into my, my network of friends to try to get more information or yeah. like, you know, that type of stuff or just stuff to work on. I mean, that mm-hmm. independent stuff is like, you know, I mean, he worked on this stuff with John Riley for a year where they just studied like Tony Williams' right hand for like a year, right? Or they just worked on one finger snap for like a year. So being able to dedicate myself to these kind of long arcs of practice, mm-hmm. it's really kind of what keeps me sane, right? It's uh Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. And I did talk to so many, I've I've talked to so many players who said the same thing, like the quarantine time was a chance to go back and explore um, just shedding again or, you know, trying to figure out concepts that they hadn't explored yet. And and a part of it was because there just hadn't been the time to really dedicate to something like that. And um, that was one thing that the quarantine and the whole pandemic did give us was, you know, a little bit more time to focus on things that maybe we hadn't been able to before. So um, well, yeah, I think once once you're in the mix, you know, it's rare that time slows down like that and you have 
the gift of 18 months to just kind of go shed or work on some new concepts or just, you know, I started playing double bass drum pedal, which was fun. Um, I got into that. I was always terrible at it. So um, I thought, okay, I just started going through stick control with my feet and working on that. And I'm starting to get pretty decent at it. Um, so, you know, just stuff like that, where you just, in the midst of the fray, you just don't have the time to kind of like, you know, bite off these huge chunks of like practice that's outside of the parameters of what you do for your gig. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, I just felt like it would be responsible to take advantage of it. Um, I also started working with this guy, Rich Stitzel, who does this thing called Drum Mantra in Chicago. Um, Rich is he's I think he's a third generation jazz educator. I think if I'm not mistaken, his grandfather started the jazz program at North Texas State. So he's pretty full tilt uh, and he's developed this kind of pedagogical concept called the drum mantra. Um, that's rooted in these kind of practice sessions. And he wrote a book on it. Uh, he also does a master class at like, um, like Dan Weiss has done it. Steve's done mm-hmm. it. I did it. Uh, Ed Self did it last, uh, last, which was amazing. Um, so I did that. I did one of those master classes. And then Rich happens to be a neighbor, another neighbor of mine, which I didn't know. So he's been coming to my house and we've been exchanging ideas so it's been great. I mean, the, the pandemic from a from a standpoint of like um, expanding your ability to self-express has been pretty remarkable just because, like right. I said, you really get here's a gift of 18 months to just kind of go and figure shit out. Right. Right. And to be home and to be home and, and you know, able to kind of like just yeah. be in one space. Right. Like that's a foreign concept. Well, yeah, and you know, as you know, you have two kids and I have two kids. So it's like being home can allow you to, you know, figure other things out. Like how much do you like your dog really? Or like, (laughs) (laughs) or do you ever want to get another dog? (laughs) Right, right. We, we did get a dog. We, we got a, we got a dog in the midst of all of this as well. Well, We we have two dogs and five cats. So we have a lot of kind of. Oh my gosh. And you have, your cats are really interesting too. You have like. Are they Siamese cats that you have? They're uh, Oriental short hairs. Okay. Yeah, they're amazing. I love when you post about them. I'm like, oh my gosh, these are the most interesting looking cats. They're super cool. So their their pedigree is they're related to well, they are uh, from the cattery called hobby cats and H O B B I I think K A T S and uh, it's Lori Ken Herbig who are uh, these incredible breeders from New York, but their cats have like. Uh, they have more followers than I think the pumpkins on, on Instagram. <laughs> like, they have like 500,000 followers. But so the, our cats, uh, Merlin and Tamsin and Kenobi and Peewee are all, uh, they're all um, descendants of the original hobby cats, which is, makes them very special. They are very, I can tell just by the photos, I can tell they're very special. <laughs> they're yeah. great. Um, yeah. So you got to be home. You got to be home with the dogs and the cats. And again, you know, reassess your life choices and, (laughs) um, and shed a lot, you know, and I, I love that, um, you know, you, you grew up, so people know you from playing with the Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, rock music and, but you grew up listening to jazz and playing jazz and studying jazz, of course, and, and rock, right. Too. You were into, um, classic rock. Well, I was the youngest of six, so it was really not a choice. So until I had my own record player, I was just into whatever my brothers and sisters were playing. But 
I was fortunate in that my brother, my older brother, Paul, was a drummer who was very influential on me. My sister, Laura, had an incredible uh, taste in music. And she's she's funnily enough, the one that turned me on to like Steve Gadd and Jim Gordon. Um, you know, she was a huge Steely Dan fan, big Joni Mitchell fan, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, Mose Allison, um, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. I mean, she had an incredible um, palette of music uh, in her bedroom that she would just grab me and say, hey, come listen to this Jim Gordon track and listen mm-hmm. to what he's on the ride cymbal. I mean, she had a really uncanny sense of like what a great drummer was so so her room was really kind of where i where i where i spent a lot of my time uh mm-hmm. either to you know that type of stuff or hendrix or, or whatever so but the root of it really was my dad my dad played clarinet so you know my dad kind of commandeered the stereo a lot so it was a lot of benny goodman pete fountain artie shaw duke ellington count basie so my earliest experience with the drums was probably krupa you know, and 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 then maybe Sonny Greer and Papa Joe and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I never really played a lot of jazz as a kid. My teachers, my first teacher was Charlie Adams, as you know, who played with Yanni, who was very much kind of a progressive rock drummer. Mm-hmm. My second teacher, um, Jerry Drowden, was a big band guy, so so I learned a lot of stuff from him. And then my third teacher was a uh, actually a timpanist. Um, who had studied a bunch of Brazil, studied a, quite a bit of Brazilian stuff. So I got into that for a couple of years. But by the time I was 15, I was already playing. I started playing polka in Chicago because that's kind of what you did. I played on a polka TV show, which really, you know, polka drumming kind of gets a, a bad rap. But for the places you play and the kind of uh, the kind of, um, you know, uh, dexterity it demands to play, it's a lot like swing. It's a lot like Bob, right? In that it's. Mm-hmm articulate and you have to play very quietly um so I, I i still feel that that was a really big part of kind of my dynamic approach to drums was being able to play articulate and quiet in in small rooms um where there was no amplification right just a, ba- a bass and an accordion mm-hmm. uh, and then from that from there i just started working so i didn't graduate high school i just started working as a drummer and that's kind of what i've been doing ever since that is amazing. And I, I think I read, um, yeah, I read somewhere that you, you went off and, you know, started your professional drumming career at age 15, which is, which is so, you know, unique and, and kind of incredible that you knew what you wanted to do back then. And you just jumped into it. And we talked a little bit before I pressed record today, just about, you know, kids and, and fostering their creativity. And it's just, it's just amazing that like you had that drive from such a young age. Yeah. I mean, I feel really fortunate that I kind of always knew what I wanted to do. Like from the first time I sat down at a drum set, uh, you know, and would play my brother's drum kit when he wasn't home. Cause he would come home and yell at me for, for <laughs> playing drum set. And then when he realized that I wasn't going to stop playing it, you know, he said, suggested getting some lessons and I started to build my own kit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people that really just don't, dig their jobs and are just still like waiting to retire and, you know, trying to, trying to, I did this thing. I, and, and being a professional drummer or semi-professional wasn't always a successful endeavor. I mean, I, I, I took a break for a while, but right before I joined the pumpkins, cause I wasn't making enough money. I started working construction and playing at night. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of the bottom fell out for a while. So it was a lot of kind of, you know, trial and error economically. Um, 
But by the time I was like 17, 18, I joined a band called JP and the Cats that was playing like 30 dates a month. I was making like 60 bucks a day, 60, $70 a day, which was good money. I mean, if you could make, yeah. you know, $3,000 a month, you were doing great. I mean, back yeah. in 19, whatever, 1980, 81 or 82, I'm 57 now. So it was quite a while ago, but, but, you know, the time that I joined the pumpkins, till so the pumpkins started making money, that was really like four years where, I mean, I was working at a bike shop. I was teaching drum lessons at some above some nightclub and just trying to make enough money to like buy food mm-hmm. thinking that like I had enough, I, I knew that like, if I didn't join the band, I was going to regret it my whole life. Right. It was kind of my one shot to be with an original music band mm-hmm. where I loved I loved Billy. I loved the band. Billy loved my playing. Mm-hmm. He allowed me to come in. Like when I first joined the band, it was really about kind of more two, four, almost like power pop stuff. And then once, once Corgan realized kind of what kind of drummer I was and he started to expose himself as this kind of closet Mahavishnu fan, that's when we started writing the stuff that became our first record, Gish. Mm-hmm. And he's always just encouraged me to kind of be who I am. Right. So, I mean, I had a banana yellow Gretsch kit cause I was a big Tony fan. So, I mean, I figured like if I can be in a band where I can just play like Tony and we have a chance at making it, like I'd be dumb to just not roll the dice and go all the way. Right. So, right. And that's, you know, still how I feel about the band that I really just, the band is a vehicle that just allows me to be myself. Mm-hmm. Rarely talk about like drum parts or music, like even on the 33 song record, we had gone in and talked about the narrative and the story and the destination of every song emotionally. And then, and then Billy just dumped the whole thing in my lap. And I spent like two months just working out drum parts. And when I would call him and say like, Hey, do you want me to send you like what I'm working on? He's like, nah, I'm sure you got it. Right. So I showed up. We hadn't even heard any of the drum parts and we were just kind of good to go. So, you know, I think if you get into a situation like that, where, you know, the person you're working with has extreme confidence in your ability to self-express in a responsible and congruent way, then that's like, that's what we're all after, right? Even as small, you have babies, right? Like when you see a baby on the floor, like their first goal is just to be understood more clearly, right? They want to be understood. Mm -hmm. I want more food or I want more. I got to go to my first bowl. Like, it's like, so as a musician, I think that's, we're very much like babies in that respect that we really, our goal is just to be understood more clearly, which is why we practice because we want to develop a broader skill set of languaging that allows us to articulate things on a deeper level and a deeper level as we kind of move through this journey. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of what this vehicle has allowed me to do. And then the other side of it is it's really allowed me the freedom to kind of go and tap into my jazzier side and really explore this kind of other uncharted territory that as we get kind of cloistered in our gigs, you know, oftentimes like jazz guys don't get a lot of time to play rock and roll and rock and roll guys don't get a lot of time to go play, you know, uh, straight ahead stuff. But I've been lucky to be able to play like Green Miller, Iridium and, and play with some great jazz players and really just kind of branch out. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love the way you described, you know, what the goal is when you're in a musical situation, just that communication. And I think that's so 
it's so incredibly important because you have this inside of you that you're trying to get out. And the, the main goal is to have other people like understand and appreciate what you're putting out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and if, if everybody understands, you know, the architecture of the story you're trying to tell, like this is what we talk about in the pumpkins a lot is really like, what's the story we're trying to tell and where do we want to land? Because, you know, Billy, Billy's a very great, he's a great storyteller. And for me, like I've realized over the years, like if I'm in on the joke and I understand the story and I know where the narrative is and what the destination of the song is, it just allows me to make better choices, right? I'm not going to play, I'm not going to sprinkle fairy dust over like a sad part of the song and I'm not going to be like morose over something that's supposed to be, you know, a joyful expression. So I think if you, you know, when you listen to Love Supreme, you hear four people that understand on a deep level the destination of this song, and they're all they're all saying the prayer congruently together, right? So that's really what I, I think music at its best is when we're all when we're all rowing the boat to the same point in the mm -hmm. ocean. Right. Right. And then and then with the Jimmy Jimmy Chamberlain complex, it allows you to express in a total in a totally different way. Right. Yeah, like that's, that's my, that's my, like anything goes, but again, you know, the first record that Moeller and I wrote for that band, um, it was very much rooted in, uh, uh, an understanding of what the destination was really. We wanted to put a stake in the ground that allowed us to create, to cast a wide net. So then the second record was more of a straight ahead, an afternoon spent with friends straight ahead, the parable. And then the last record again was just an afternoon spent with friends. So, as we get kind of more into it, that's kind of what we like about it is that, you know, we don't, we do, if we, it can be whatever we want it to be, right? If we want it to be like, we're talking about doing a heavy metal record now for the next complex record and really getting into like, there's this great soundtrack that my daughter listens to called Guilty Gear. Um, it's a soundtrack for a video game okay. that's, each song is the is the um, is the theme song for a character in the game, and it's incredible music, right? Really well done, kind of modern, postmodern metal. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of we're kind of checking that as a template for the next complex record, which will be, you know, that's an example of something that's kind of premeditated by choice, right? So you, right. you're choosing to premeditate a record and saying, okay, we want to make this kind of record, but. The other side of that is like we don't premeditate anything. We just get together and see kind of what happens when we start playing, and that's kind of what what it is. And I think each each exercise has equal value. It's just going in with the knowledge of kind of what you want to achieve mm -hmm. um, that creates the architecture for it. Absolutely! Wow, well, I'm excited for that album. That's that's going to be great. I know I'm too. I'm we're trying to get like I'm racking my brain to think like who's going to play. I think I'm going to call like Chris Poland, um, who I've played with before, and I know uh, he's played with Frank and I in the quartet. We did a thing with uh, Percy Jones from Brand X and Chris <laughs> Poland called the Love Supreme Collective, where we did kind of a kind of an homage to Love Supreme, but more in like a fusion fusion way. And uh, Chris played on that. It was amazing. So he's an amazing metal guitar player. I think he would come in and really do a nice job on this. He doesn't know about it yet, so maybe he'll find out through the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah surprise. <laughs> hey, man. I heard you were talking about me. 
that's so great though and like you know like you said you've been working on your double bass stuff and right. that'll be that'll be so much fun i like that i'm i'm interested to hear when that comes out um that's uh, yeah that's that's great and so so you I, I just am curious how, how things have changed over the years. You know, you've done so much touring um, between the bands that you've been in and everything. How it has, like, I mean, I see it from a perspective of going to shows and spending time with musicians, but um, it feels like the tour life has changed a lot. And then also, like, as we've gotten older, like, the 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 daily activities have changed, you know, the the... <laughs> A lot of the uh, backstage, you know, drinks have been replaced by like a smoothie machine and things like right? that. So. Smoothies, right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, hundred percent, yeah, so right? So, I mean, I guess most people know, but maybe they don't. So, when I got married, so my wife and I just celebrated our twentieth anniversary, right? So, twenty years married. I love, you know, I love being married. It's the greatest thing ever. Um, so when our daughter was born, Audrey, um, so we both quit drinking, both quit everything, right? So I've been, I've been, you know, this kind of quasi sober guy for 20, 20 years, 19 years. So that's really been, that was kind of the start of this kind of health crusade for me. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously, um, you know, taking, uh, your health more responsibly had an impact on my drumming. And like, for me, my relationship with my instrument is the oldest relationship I have. My parents are dead. I don't really talk to my brothers and sisters that much. You know, I'm the youngest of six. So there's a lot of like, like I don't go into swimming pools. Cause when I did, I used to just, my brothers would just try to drown me. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's like, okay. you know, when you're, the young, when you're the youngest kid, it's like you get yeah. a lot of downs. Right. So yeah, and it's still like, they don't take me seriously. I go to breakfast with them. They talk over me. They interrupt me still. They still think I'm like, you know, eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm joking, of course. I love my family, but my relationship with my drum kid is like the oldest I have. So every time I've done something for my health, including kind of quit drinking, I've been a vegan now for three years. Um, I started seeing a doctor. Um, I started uh, lifting, like deadlifting and pressing and doing like these exercises. Mm -hmm. And everything I do, it just impacts my drumming in such a positive way that like I can't go back, right? It's like yeah. knowing, knowing that this stuff makes you like a better drummer and your 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 time is more more holographic and and things are things are more lucid. Like that's really the impetus for this kind of health crusade that I've been on. Uh, not, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, obviously I want to be around for my grandkids and all that stuff and that all that cliche stuff. But really, for me, it's like being a vegan was an eye opener. And like when we recorded the Sear record we had 20 songs to record and it was the first record we ever recorded to click, right? Pumpkins always recorded drums, no click straight to tape. And like Corgan would pick the best drum performance that he wanted. Right. So mm -hmm. whether it dragged or sped up or whatever, he would be like, I just, this one's got what I'm looking for, the vibe. Right. And sometimes I would be like, Oh my God, no. Right. <laughs> sometimes I'd be like, great. Right. But I just, I just lived with it because I trusted him and it mm -hmm. seemed to have out. Right. So, this record we recorded to click because we were going to do some sound replacement. So, you know, I worked on it at home a little bit and, and we blacked out about 20 days to record the drums, which is a song a day with, you know, some figuring we would get two some days and maybe three. 
and then have some time to do some rearranging. I had gone vegan like six months before the recording session. I went in and tracked all the drums in six days. And I was like, wow, this is crazy that this happened so fast. And Corgan was like, dude, what's going on? He's like, your time is so much better. It's like, you're, you're able to like pull verses back and push choruses ahead of the time. And it doesn't sound wonky. And I said, I don't know, but like taking all the fat and inflammation out of my system just helped with like the fine motor part of like neuroplasticity and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. I believe me, I wanted to go back to eating like sausage pizza and, and that stuff, but I, I couldn't deny what it did for my, for my drumming. So I just right. kind of, it. now it's been three years and I feel like I'm way healthier. Uh, I feel way better. I lost a bunch of weight. I'm way more alert. I'm way more lucid. Um, and it just works for me. So, so yeah, in that regard, I think, you know, we get to, again, it's like ownership and like what, you know, what, what is it, what is it you want to define you? Right. And, and mm -hmm. for me, it's not even the drums so much It's like my accountability to my covenant with myself. Right. And that's really right. like, especially raising kids. Cause that's like the environment you want them to be exposed to. Not that I'm like, and, and in the, and in the past when I was drinking and like doing drugs and stuff, it was really more a byproduct of just my OCD nature, right? I'm just like OCD. So anything I do, whether like I race cars for two years, I ride motorcycles, like I do all this crazy, like rock climbing stuff. But, and that's like, that's more rooted in kind of that past, like OCD stuff. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not the same as like an internal covenant where you just like, you made a deal with yourself and you're just going to kind of stick to it. There's mm -hmm. a real, there's a real empowerment, I think, in that, in that kind of keeping true to that, that's um, infectious, right? And if you can do it, at least for me, if you can do it long enough, it doesn't be about, it doesn't become about like, can I do it? It becomes more about like, what am I going to feel like if I don't do it, right? Right. <laughs> so, yes. So I've kind of gotten over that line where now it's like, now I'm kind of screwed, right? I can't go back. I can't because go back. I, I yeah. Muck, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I understand that a hundred percent. I think when you, um, when you start like really focusing on your health and feeling better, you have more control over your, yourself, like in, in all ways you have, you know, like you were talking about, um, with the timing and, and all of that. I feel personally when I'm in the best shape I can be, I feel like I have control over my limbs and everything that I'm doing. My, my, I'm working to, everything's working together. Like it feels um, cohesive. And then you're right because you feel so good that you're like, I don't really want to feel bad like that. When I eat that, I don't feel great. Or when I drink that, I don't feel my best or, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. I think it is, it, it is one of those things where then you kind of consciously make the choice to, to keep feeling better. Keep feeling yeah, good. Yeah. And you know, for me, I mean, you know, and other people don't have the issues that I had. I mean, obviously, you know, you can read about my mistakes in on wiki and my kids can read about it. So it gives me credibility in that space for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, like having burned it all down, and kind of gone and, you know, risen from the ashes to the best of my ability. You know, when I got married, you know, I was still at the kind of end of that, at the end of that kind of using and abusing rope. And it just occurred to me that like, 
you know, that stuff, like the most punk rock thing that I could have done at that point, having done all that other stuff was really get married and quit drinking. Right. And raise <laughs> that was like, that was really like, that was the last box to check. Right. There was all that. I had done everything else, like wrecked cars, fucking crashing into cop cars. I mean, I had done like just the worst of the worst. I mean, those, you know, drugs, alcohol, got fired from my band, got humiliated publicly. I mean, it was like the only thing to do was really like to have this like suburban, like every man experience, which like it just turned out to be fun. And like, I'm into it. And then you had kids to the mix and, you know, pets and everything else. And you're like, I really don't have time to go be a knucklehead anymore. Right. Yeah. You, you have, you have, you're responsible to other people right. for sure. And, and other pets, right? I didn't, I didn't want to get married and my wife somehow talked me into it, thankfully. And I ended up doing it. I was like, ah, this is going to be a debacle, right? Like the rest of this stuff in my life, this is going to be a disaster. right? And it ended up just working out. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful every day for, you know, what has transpired and really, you know, and it's really impacted my journey as a musician in the best possible way. I mean, I've got to be like friends and refriends with so many people. I chased Peter Erskine around Europe the last time we were there. He was playing, he was playing with Kenny Warner and those guys. <laughs> like Pete and I are really good friends. I mean, I, I've gotten to be friends with so many great musicians that, I mean, Damian Reed was playing at Corden the other night and he came up, he's a big fan. And I was, and then he came to the show in Redondo and oh, nice! I was just like, that's so cool that these like Carter McLean, I mean, like there's so many great drummers that just come out and hang, you know, mm-hmm. drums, drums aren't like guitar, you know, it's a real, it's a real brotherhood. And, and, and yeah. like Gary, I went to see him the other night. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a wonderful uh, family to be part of. It really is. And I, I say that on this podcast all the time, but it really is like the most amazing community of people who truly care about each other and are like rooting for each other. Um, You know, and I experienced that being, being a part of it and, and having, you know, um, a career change and realizing that like all of those people who you know, were, were my, my friends were really like, really there for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you texted me, I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is going to be a hassle. I'm thinking like, oh, this is going to help like Sarah, who's been a great advocate for all of us. I mean, over these years. So, you know, that's a, that's a real good example. And you'll see like that the love will just come kind of, you know, raining down on you. I mean, I remember doing, I did drummer fest in like 2004 and it was kind of, I had just kind of started doing clinics and it was a terrifying experience for me. Uh, and I ended up getting thrown in this mix with, it was me, Kenny Aronoff, Terry Bozio, Greg Bissonette, Thomas Lang. And I'm like, which one of these people doesn't fit in this picture. Right. And, uh, Oh no, no, you were, I, I feel, I feel like I was there. Where, what, where was this? This is London. Okay, no, I was not there, but, yeah, but I remember that lineup though. It was a killer lineup, and you deserve to be in that lineup. That's great. It was so fun, and Terry, you know, Terry was like, he was so nice to me, and he was like, "Look, nobody can do what you're doing. I can't do it. Thomas can't do it. Kenny can't do it. Obviously, you know, 
Kenny, Kenny was in your band. I Bozio had auditioned for the Pumpkins when I got fired. So um, they just really allowed me to see my own personal value and celebrate it in a way that actually like I was, I felt like I was, I was, they gave me permission to kind of be okay with what I did for the first time and, and playing in front or behind those guys was, you know, was daunting, but as it was also kind of a reconfirmation of kind of where you're at, where you're at. And I remember like when it, I remember playing at the last day, like 5,000 people drummer fest. And I was on like three in the afternoon, I was playing some complex tracks and it was going really well. And I was like really comfortable and I was having a great day. And then I looked, I looked, I felt like something like an energy to my right. And I looked over and Bill Bruford was just standing there watching me with his arms crossed. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, it's Bill Bruford. I was like, and everything I'm like, Oh my God, this is a disaster. I'm like, I can't even think right now. And I finished, I finished the song and Bill was like clapping politely. And I go, Bill, Bill, we hadn't even met yet. And I go, Bill, you can't stand there and watch me. This is, this is, I mean, it's bad enough to be up here with these guys, but you like standing there, you got to go. We'll talk later, please. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we ended up, we ended, he started laughing and he, um, and the crowd started laughing. And then we of course caught up later. And, um, but those guys were just the nicest. And now Terry and I are, are like, we're best friends. I mean, we're, we talk, you know, not all the time, but I see him whenever he's in town. He's been a huge supporter of mine. Um, all those guys, Kenny, Greg, uh, Thomas, just, they're like brothers, right? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, and when I was a kid, like, I remember like just staring at like yes. drummers and I met Ralph Humphrey. It's like, I never thought that I would be like even meeting these guys or seeing these guys, let alone being, you know, uh, in the same conversation as those guys. So absolutely. Yeah. Just, that part of that part of it for me is probably the craziest, like pinch yourself. Cause I'm still such a huge fanboy. Yeah. I, we all are. But you know what? The greatest the greatest part is that like they all are too. Like we're all we're we're all just fans of drumming and music and drummers in general. And I, I've had that same experience just having a conversation with someone who I you know, Sheila E is a good example. I grew up and Sheila was really only one of the very few female drummers out there and seeing her up on stage and playing with Prince and the gram glamour glamorous life and her, you know, the way she dressed and presented herself. And I was just like, she's like the ultimate and meeting her in person for the first time years back. And she was just like the sweetest, most down to earth person. She complimented me on my shirt. She, you know, she said, Oh, I have that shirt in, in black. And I almost fell over. You know, I was just like, Sheila E. But it's so funny because she is a fan too. Like we're all, we're all in the same, the same boat in that way. And I love that. You know, when you see drummers watching other drummers on stage and cheering them on and encouraging and, you know, and then the hangs afterwards, the dinners, like, I don't feel like other musicians all go to dinner like that and just like geek out about gear and, and technique and all that. Yeah. Or just, you know, we're constantly like emailing or texting, you know, Yeah, it's a great, it's a great family and it's really, you know, it's really, um, it's really motivational. Right. And it allows you to see, you know, that this thing that we're all part of has an extreme 
it's a, a ton of value, right? Even as like drumming aside, like just the relationships and um, the honor and um, the camaraderie and the self-respect and the respect that it garners is like, that's enough. I mean, the drumming is obviously a, a, a huge, you know, net positive, but the friendship and the compassion and the gratitude that kind of permeates the whole uh, network of drumming is really what's so compelling about it. And I think it's really just because drumming, it just, drummers know that this thing never ends, right? It just never ends. It doesn't end ever. I mean, look at Roy. I mean, I've, I've, I've sat with Roy Haynes. Roy Haynes has met my wife. My wife's got, my wife has a drum head with Roy Haynes and JR and Russ Miller. And I don't, my wife does, right? <laughs> yes, I love that. Earl Palmer, Earl Palmer. I mean, yeah. yeah. All the, and like they, uh, like they know my wife, like Joe Teston was my wife, right? It's like, we know Cam. It's like, there's a huge like family contingency attached to it too. But like looking at Roy and looking at him play, you know that it just never ends because he just gets better and better and better. I mean, right. He, just, he gets yeah. better. better. I've got, I got that life and time box set where the first, his first, he's playing with Charlie Parker. Like, right. What? It is, it is amazing. And I, I do think that like drumming keeps you young. Like there's something about it that just, that just keeps, keeps you youthful inside, you know, because it's fun and it, and it, you know, it's just, um, I don't know. I think about people like Roy and I think about like all the, the greats who just played until the end and, you know, and then, you know, and you look so great and Kenny Aronoff and everybody like just doesn't age like normal, you know, it's just amazing. Well, I think as you get older, it's it just like Kenny, you know, Kenny's extremely healthy. Kenny's one of my best friends. I mean, Whenever he's in town and I'm playing, he always comes to see me. I always go to see him. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're like, I was just, I get my, uh, on my iPhone, I get pictures that flash up, you know, on your, yeah. like, this day, this day and, you know, whatever year. The and memories, yeah. Was, Kenny and I were just uh, in a in a drummer's embrace at one of his Bodine's gigs. And he had come to see me play a jazz gig the night before. And I remember my brother was there. And my brother was like, oh, my God, that's Kenny Aronoff. And I was like, no, that's just Kenny Aronoff. Because <laughs> he's just Kenny, right? He's just like, hey, sit down and talk to anybody. And he's, yes, yeah. And there is nothing like a Kenny Aronoff embrace. I'll have to say that. There's nothing the in the world like that. Yeah, he's the best. In fact, you know, he was um, – he really – when we were doing Drummer Fest, uh, Terry was doing, I think um, – he was doing uh, Phantomas, I think, with Mike Pat, yeah. And he he had this binder uh, full of sheet music for the the charts for the for the for the gig, and it was all the crazy fucking. It was like a Zappa chart, right? It was crazy, yeah. And and you know all this kind of metric modulation and you know thirteen over four, like all this crazy shit. Mm -hmm. um, and Kenny came over and and just kind of. Uh, off the cuff sight sang one of the pages and we were like, Oh yeah, you're Kenny here. <laughs> we were like, Holy shit. It blew our minds. But then we remembered like, you know, Indiana state. I mean, he's, he's a, he's that guy. Like he was, That's a what he does, right. He yeah. to read, right. But uh, amazing. super guy. Man. So talented. Yeah. 
but this 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 industry is just it's just, it is the best i i always i pinch myself all the time too thinking like you know this, this is real <laughs> it's just it's just amazing and and you're right it just goes on um and I the mean, next I generation to, i love going to like drum channel right or like even though i'm not a dw guy like I like just go hang with Don Lombardi all day and like just see who pops in. Right. Last time I was there, it was uh, Joe Percaro was there before he passed and Ralph Humphrey was there and Kenny uh, or uh, Terry was there. And we just sat around and Don had these buddy rich tapes where they had isolated, they had isolated the drums. So we listened to like, we listened to like love for sale, just the bass drum. It's <laughs> just all, just wow. all Rolled around in Don's office, just listening to the bass drum track for Love for Sale. I'm like, who the hell else is doing this stuff? Right, right. <laughs> right. That's amazing. That's amazing, and 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 it's and it's universal. Like this is how we are. We're all we're all a little bit crazy like that. So yeah. it's it's so great. Um, and I was just going to ask you about you know the the next generation kind of coming up. You mentioned the music that your daughter was listening to, the um, the metal music, and are you hearing? I mean, I always ask. I always ask like my, my cousins and my, my friends, kids who are like in their teens, what they're listening to at the moment. Um, is there anything that you've heard recently that you're like, yeah, that's, that's like the next thing. I mean, honestly, the guilty gear soundtrack is, is really amazing. The drumming is like, it's like, it's like fusion drumming in a in a metal rock context uh, in the best possible way because but because it's a video game soundtrack, it kind of gets a free pass in how derivative it can be, right? So there's mm -hmm. a I think the guy who wrote it who wrote it and I can't think of his name right now. Um, he's a I think he's a Japanese guy that lived in South Africa, guitar player. But some he he wrote a song called Zappa. He wrote a song called Slayer. So you can see like some of the songs are are, are homages in a, in yeah. a derivative but in the best possible way. So I think, um, you know, that stuff is really cool. My daughter's listening to uh, a lot of like Japanese Vocaloid stuff where, you know, the vocals are comprised of, uh, 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 of a phonetically uh, recorded uh, vocal database. So it's just a singer recording consonants and vowels, and then you can assemble lyrics by putting those components together, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, as, as far as drumming goes, I mean, I'm on, you know, Instagram looking at guys who could, you know, wipe the floor with me who are 18, 19. I mean, there's just so much talent out there. I mean, it's really, it's incredible. Like, I was telling my doctor, like, my doctor's into this age reversal protocol and like hormoning and uh, uh, like peptides and, and all this, all this stuff to kind of lengthen the telomeres that increase your age and I was I was just telling him like, what does drumming sound like if people can live to 120? Right? What is what is what does drumming start to sound like if people can live that? And I, obviously, Roy is probably the closest thing we've got to that, like right. where it kind of get to. But if you can if you can have a life of 120 years and you start playing when you're 10, like where does drumming get to with all the resources that are available to us? You know, it gets into, you know, obviously. Um, you know, Virgil Donati territory very early. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, you know, who knows? But, but, you know, I think what's, what's most evident to me when I listen to drummers uh, in, 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 and what's different about how I learn and kind of how Terry learned, like 
we learn by hearing stuff, right? Like we learn by putting a needle on a record and trying to figure out kind of what John Bonham was doing or what Buddy was doing or, you know, <laughs> Elvin. And by that, you know, we kind of developed our own version of those phrases, right? And I think what we were what we were after, like when I heard Tony, like Lifetime, and then went back and, and researched his earlier drumming, but it was the emotional content of what he was doing that we were trying to replicate, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it took us a long time to catch up mechanically to what Tony was doing with the the flam stuff and and you know obviously the independence, right? It, it took us a while to figure that stuff out. Whereas now it's almost the opposite, where you can see the mechanics of stuff, and then hope the hope is that you land in the emotional connectivity later, right? So I right. think. I think that's the biggest difference I see in drumming is that it used to be an auditory experience and now it's more of a visual learning experience. Like I only saw my teacher once a week. So if I didn't know how to do something, I'd have to wait six days or seven days to see like how to do it. Like he was a big Bill Bruford guy. So he would teach me like Bruford fills or one five percent or nothing like that groove or this guy I think was the first drum fill he ever wrote in my book. Like, those types of things, you know, we didn't we didn't have any visual cues. Whereas now you can go back and see kind of what Tony was doing. You can mm-hmm. watch it, but you can see, and then kind of figure, and then back the truck into the dock uh, as to kind of you know where you're going to make those choices. But I think f- for me, it, it being um, somebody who's really as a drummer tries to be subservient to a narrative. Mm-hmm not really about this kind of Tetris puzzle that sometimes it becomes about today. It's really more about knowing what story I want to tell you and then taking things off the shelf that will reinforce that narrative and help add dynamic shading around the parts that I want to be sad or happy or whatever, move forward. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little different now. And I hear things that are incongruent and I hear things that are, that are, that are way cooler. Right. So it's just, I feel like we're at this kind of juncture where drumming is about to launch into this whole other thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I agree with you. Absolutely. And I also, you know, will look at drummers on Instagram and just be like, oh my goodness. Like I've never, that is totally crazy, fantastic. But I, how? Like, (laughs) and and I, I feel the same way. I, I grew up also, you know, listening and, and learning how to play from, from listening. And, you know, we didn't have YouTube and, and all of that. Um, I think it is so different now. And it, it, there's so much about the, the visual that, um, that it is a, it is a focus of like kids making drumming videos. Now they're focused on the, the visual. Um, I'm thinking of there's, there's a, a, an Instagram drummer named Al Estepario and um, watching his videos. I don't know if you've seen any, any of his videos, but he's, he, you know, will hit the, hit the stick on the snare and it flips and he's not even looking at it and he's catching it in the midst of this like blistering drum blast, you know, and it's fantastic. I mean, it just blows me away when I see him play. Um, and he's like, he's one of those drummers who is, this is what he does. Like he's content to be d- 
doing, you know, Instagram videos and he's doing a great job at it and, you know, making, making it work for him, which is so great. Um, for me, it's so foreign because I'm just like, I don't even like, I same with you. I grew up, I grew up like pushing the needle back to listen again and try to figure out what that was that just happened, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, but it is amazing how things have transitioned and, and they are kind of like being pushed into the future. And like you just mentioned with the, um, what was it that you, that you said it was, um, the phonetic sounds that were vocaloid. vocaloid. Vocal, amazing. So I need to look into that for sure. Um, wild, yeah, my daughter's got a, she's got a Vocaloid interface and she's been, um, she's been um, reinterpreting like some of her favorite, like she just wrote, uh, she just did a Vocaloid version of Shake the Disease by Depeche Mode, which is like oh. super cool. I mean, but yeah. creepy, creepy way, but a good, good creepy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, she's, She's kind of an old soul, so she's done, you know, she's she's had access to my record collection. So when she was like six, she would just go pick out records. And so, you know, we'd walk by her room and she'd be listening to like Curtis Mayfield or something. Like we'd be wow. like, oh, what are we doing to this kid? But, That's um, amazing. but yeah, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to her because, because in addition to her contemporary kind of her contemporary stuff that she listens to, she's a big Curtis Mayfield fan. She loves... Uh, Joni Mitchell, and she loves Carol King. She loves Earth, Wind, and Fire. She likes, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And when she, it was funny when she would play a record, um, like Bowie, right? So when Lori was pregnant with Audrey, she went to see Bowie. I was on tour, and she met Bowie backstage. And Bowie put his hand on Lori's stomach and started talking to Audrey because we knew it was going to be a girl, right? Wow. And then Audrey came out and she immediately, well, not immediately, but as soon as she was old enough, she kind of gravitated towards Bowie. Right. And her and I have, I play guitar. So we've, 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 she plays ukulele. So we've done Bowie songs together, um, mm -hmm. oddity and stuff. We've learned the chords and she's got a great voice. So she sings, she sings as well. Um, so she's, when she would play records like hunky dory or whatever, she would drop the needle and have that kind of 20 minute analog exchange where she'd lay on her bed and look at the album cover for 20 minutes and then she'd get up and it would be over, right? And when she would put her, when she got older and she got an iPhone and she would wear her earbuds, it became the background music for this other kind of digital experience she was having. It was really weird. Something about the digital versus analog. It became the soundtrack for whatever cleaning or fish tank or returning email or doing homework, right? Right. And I always said, like, if you put the needle on a record, you can't do homework. Right. It won't allow you to because of the because of the constant sine waves in the music. There's no interruption in the file, so mm -hmm. it's demands your attention. But if you're listening to you know whatever she's listening to, Bastille or Imagine Dragons or any of these kind of contemporary artists. She she can totally like multitask. So right. I don't, I'm not smart enough or a scientist to know kind of how to figure that out. But I know like I'm a big vinyl guy. And when my wife and I sit in front of our stereo and listen to Fela or Miles Davis or whatever we're listening to, like we have that 20 minute experience. But when we have yeah. the iPod playing through the speakers in the house, like we're making dinner or we're just, you know, messing around. It's a different type of listening experience. But you're so right. Yeah. But Don, you know, Don Lombardi, um, you know, we, we talked a lot about the modern drummer and kind of how they learn. And, you know, we 
we Don wanted me to write a book called The Why of Drumming, right? Because because right now drummers can learn the how and the what, but sometimes if you ask them why, they don't really have an answer, right? Like why are you doing that? Like if you're if you're in the midst of a song and you play some crazy drum fill that fits and the answer is because it fits and it's cool and I can do it, but it doesn't have anything to do with the story. Then, you know, that's, that's where it kind of loses me not to be kind of old and curmudgeon but I'm, I grew up on very impassioned music, whether like Ornette Coleman or, you know, Coltrane or, you know, mm -hmm. that Nikki, obviously Lee Morgan uh, stuff that really had an emotional destination the emotional destination of the song reigns supreme and the soloing the soloing was subservient to the to the to the place on the map where they needed to get to right right um which oftentimes in kind of the drumming we're talking about now it it's a, it's a bit of a head scratcher and if the destination is like it's cool or i want to be a youtube star then that that for me is enough and that's <clears throat> that's congruent with the with the with the proper narrative but i'm mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes it, <clears throat> it gets to be you know, a license to kind of, you know, drive over the speed limit or, you know, those, those types of things, not, right. not, not to bag on it because I mean, I, I'm, <clears throat> no one is more impressed or appreciative of the mastery of the technique than, than, you know, us drummers, mm -hmm. but as, as drummers, that's kind of what we do at home. You know, we work on, you know, uh, swung eighth notes over a swing pattern right but we don't necessarily play that all like through night and day or you know those types of songs or fly me to the moon or whatever standard you're playing right but you need to have those things in your toolbox to articulate a narrative within the context of another narrative right or a, or a, or a deeper understanding of that narrative so that's where like the practicing becomes just another vehicle to be understood more clearly not to kind of demonstrate that I can play this kind of uh, interstellar like passage over right swing field, which which is in the privacy of my own home. Yeah, I mean I listen to that stuff all day long. I mm -hmm. mean, but you know Brand X, you know those types of things. That that was the destination for that stuff. Right. I remember right. The weather report and thinking like, oh my god, you can play like this. Yes. And you paid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in, right? I love that. I, but I do like that concept, though, for a book because it does. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like that's been a theme of our conversation is like the like, why? What's the story behind it? Right. Why? Why are you choosing to to go this way musically? Um, what is the meaning behind it? And then the connection to the audience? You know, well, a lot of musicians historically that have done that stuff successfully, like whether you're talking about Bill Frizzell or Joe Pass or Paul Motion, you know, there's 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 tons of guys that have gotten away with that stuff because they understood at a deep level um, how to convey, like Bill Evans, how the conveyance of those types of emotions in an extremely sophisticated, multi-tangential, multi-layered self-expression. Right. When you listen to late versions of Bill Evans playing artists, you know, with with Joe LaBarbera. Mm. And, uh, and um, uh, I forget uh, who the bass player was. Uh, uh, the late, the last bass player um, was. Uh, it's just amazing, right? Where he got to with that, with that song. Yeah. 
I mean, that last concert in Germany or wherever he is, you can watch it on YouTube. It's absolutely amazing. I think it's uh, Marty Corral is playing drums on that, but it's it's absolutely amazing where he got to with that song, with just the architecture of that song and the sophistication of the self-expression. But the right. destination kind of remained the same, right? You still got to the same place as he did in the '60s when he when he when he did that. It was just it was just denser, right? There was just that. It's the difference between like walking down a street of newly planted trees and understanding the beauty of that, and then walking down twenty years and seeing this these massive oak trees that have that have grown, you know, forty feet, and having this the same. You're getting to the same place, but the environment has changed. It's become a, a deeper a deeper imagery of the de of the journey and the destination, and that's really what I when I like when I look at musicians, that's what I feel like. Like I saw their gardens very early on, and now their gardens are like completely fertilized and had like the perfect growing seasons, and like you're experiencing the full breadth and weight of their experiences. That to me is when like music is at its best. I love that analogy. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I, and I see it and totally understand what you're saying. So, so great. Yeah. Um, I mean, then, you know, that's kind of what, that's kind of what, you know, a metaphor for what at least I, I feel like um, should be going on. Like we, we don't, we don't need to walk different paths all the time, but we have to understand that the path we are walking can become a deeper and richer and more sophisticated as we become clever and more art articulate in our ability to convey what we're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have, I've loved watching your musical journey too. I mean, I just, just to bring it back to you, I met you, I want to say probably 2004 or so you were, you were playing with Jimmy Chamberlain uh, complex and you were in Boston at the paradise yeah, and I, and I only knew you from Smashing Pumpkins. Like that's what that's the the style that I had in my head, and um, so I went to see you play, and I was just blown away. It was like this: there's a whole other like dimension happening right now. So <laughs> I remember Terry saw that band, and he came up to me and he goes, "Dude, you just played Fred." <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I, yeah. I, would, I was like, did I really play it or did I kind of play it? <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, like, it was just, it was like, oh, my gosh, I hadn't, I didn't know. Like, I had no idea. And it just, um, yeah, it just blew me away. And again, like, gave me a whole other layer of of thought to, like, you and your, and your playing. And, you know, that's only continued. And I've seen you do drum clinics and all of that throughout the years. It's just so great. I just can't wait to see what comes next and the, the thought of the metal record and more smashing pumpkins and more touring. And I think you guys come through Boston um, on the, on the tour in the fall. So hopefully, we do, we'll yeah. To, yeah, we'll get to see each other in person. And I just, um, I'm excited for everything that you have coming up. Yeah, me too. I think it's really, uh, it's really kind of a fun time. And I think the pandemic, you know, as kind of awful as it was, uh, has given, you know, everybody a new appreciation uh, for what they had and what, what, you know, I mean, look, I think as you get older, or maybe, maybe some are lucky to figure this out when they're younger, but at some point in your life, and maybe kids have something to do with it, 
you you realize that like the most valuable thing you have is your time, right? Mm-hmm. And no money or Ferraris or Porsches and and all this other accoutrements of life are going to sub- substitute for the value of your time and how your time is spent. Um, yeah. So that's really like that's my mantra these days is that I really know or want to know that or keep in mind that the most valuable thing is my time and how I want to spend it and the changes right it's not it's not always like I want to be doing this or I want to be doing that it's it's in flux a lot Um, um, but I do you know I am in service to the uh, the value of my time and how I how I want to spend it and I really did enjoy or am enjoying like continuing to learn with Steve uh, Lyman, who's an incredible uh, educator and, and Rich uh, Stitzel and anybody, I mean, that I can get my hands on. I'm, I'm like, how do you do this? Right. <laughs> like yeah. uh, Leon, we played together on the Corden show the other day and we talked a lot about drumming and, and it's like, that stuff is like, it's super valuable. Right. And I feel like when I'm having those conversations with, with, with people that are great, um, you know, it's, it's the best use of my time. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And, and also, you know, they're, they're excited to do it too. You know what I mean? Like Peter, you mentioned Peter Erskine, you know, he's, he's more than happy to talk about, you know, technique and theory and all those things. Like, you know, that's, that's his love too. And I, I love, I love that, you know, I've learned so much from him. Yeah. I mean, just not even about drumming, right? Just about kids and being, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, I've been a fan of his since, fuck, I mean, for, forever. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to date him, but I mean, geez, I was a weather report fan. My sister turned me on to heavy weather. I remember meeting Alex Acuna and like, like almost hyperventilating, right? And <laughs> I was at Lombardi's office as well. I was like, yeah. oh my God, like, I can't, I can't. We would have to sit here for three days to, to for me to tell you like my story about listening to you, right? Listening right. to you know, a remark you made and and those songs that were so influential. I mean, the drum pattern in Tonight Tonight is a, is is an homage to Birdland. I mean, the the whole open hat clave thing is really like that's where that came from. I mean, that's like when I heard that, I was like, that is such an incredible way to put put a verse over. Um, so. You know, I've been a fan of that stuff for so long, but I've got an email from Peter um, from about, God, probably 20 years ago. It's one of my, it's one of my most prized possessions where he, he emails me and says, Hey, I got a student that's asking me about your drumming in this one part that you did. Can you, can you tell me how you did this one thing? And I was like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? (laughs) I love that. that. And that's what I mean too. Like that's, that's Peter. Like he's a, you know, he's, he wants to know as well. He's a fan of, of all music as well. And I, I also have an email from Peter. That's one of my prized possessions. And he just, um, you know, he's, he, Peter doesn't um, mince words, right? He says what he what he thinks and what he means always. And so I think when Peter graces you with um, a sincere compliment about something, it is even more meaningful, you know? And, and it just, he's just one of those people that his words have so much weight to them. And so oh, yeah. I understand he's, he's why you wrote that email. In fact, the first time I did PASIC, 
I had the unfortunate, uh, unfortunate experience of having to play after Peter um, and after uh, Tommy uh, Igo. Because mm-hmm. pumpkins were huge, right? And it was like, and you know, it was, it was. So the night before, and this is like 1999. So I was still partying a little bit. So Peter and Freddie Gruber and I, and I think uh, I think Billy Ward, a couple other drummers, all went out and maybe indulged a little bit too much. And then the next day, Peter had Mike Marinari on vibes and played like this incredible version of like kind of blue and so relaxed. And then as I'm watching him, my palms are starting to sweat and I'm thinking like, I gotta, follow, I gotta go up and follow this with like my ham fisted fusion drumming attempt. Right. And, and I remember Peter, uh, when I was doing my thing, Peter, Peter just came and sat in the front row and just kind of sat there with his arms crossed and watched my whole thing. And, you know, you're basically, when he's in the audience, you're just playing for Peter, right? There's nobody yeah. there. I'm just like, okay, what did he think? Like, oh, he just blinked. What is, did he like that? <laughs> what did that mean? It was a disaster, right? I mean, I sounded okay. And uh, Pete, Pete was like, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. You know, you looked a little nervous, but it was pretty good. But then I realized the lesson was like, don't go out with Peter the night before. <laughs> 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 so don't go out with Peter and Freddie when you're this is your first clinic ever, right? Because they're gonna teach you a lesson. It's not about drumming, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, all the life lessons. I love go that. To bed at 9 o'clock. <laughs> That's so great. That's so so great. Yeah. Well, I just I want to thank you so much, Jimmy. I, I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. And the fact that, you know, I had um I texted you and I just said, Hey, you know, I would love to have you on the podcast. Let me know. And you texted me back and I think you just said, yes, when, you know, so <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just so appreciate that. Um, and your willingness to spend some time and I know you're on the road and, um, you know, it just means a lot to me. So thank you so much. Sure. It's my pleasure. It's so, so fun to talk drums and anytime. So if you need anything else, just hit me up. You got my number. Absolutely. I would do that. And I look forward to seeing all the great things you have coming up and seeing you in person when you come through Boston. Yeah. Hit me um, up when you come through. We got to get some lunch or, or hang out. Yes. We'll get some good vegan food for sure. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you so much. You take care. I'll talk to you soon. Sarah. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.